Welcome to the Jockey Club, a podcast looking at the movie Let It Ride, one scene at a time. My name is Dan Delgado, and we're at historic Hylia Park where one man is having the best day of his life. I'm having a good day. So come on in and hang out while we talk about this day and the greatest movie of all time, Let It Ride. Don't worry about that guy at the door. I've got you covered. You can even take my seat to the Jockey Club. Welcome back to the Jockey Club. And if you're going to listen to only one episode of this podcast, then this is the one to listen to. But really, listen to all of them. Today, joining me at my trackside table is none other than Let It Ride co-producer Randy Ostrow. And yes, we do touch on the seventh scene of the movie because, after all, this is a scene-by-scene look at the movie Let It Ride, but I'll be honest with you and just tell you that we spent most of the time discussing what it was like to produce this movie. And Randy is a very candid man, let me tell you. We discuss how Good Vibes became Let It Ride and what it was like to deal with producer David Geiler, director Joe Pitka, and screenwriter Nancy Dowd, in addition to, of course, author Jay Cronley. All of these names have come up on this podcast at some point or another. So let's not waste any more time and get right out to the track and check out my conversation with Randy Ostrow. Let, let me tell you. Yeah. The, the genesis of the project. Uh, that's yeah, Yes, exactly. I was uh, uh, ADing a slasher movie in Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. and my friend Ned Dowd, whose sister Nancy Dowd, wrote the script for Let It Ride, but she also wrote the script for Slapshot, mm-hmm. which is the story of Ned's, of Ned Dowd's hockey career, basically. Yes. So uh, I met Ned uh, in 1981, and we were hanging around in 1985. Uh, he was doing a picture in Dallas. He was doing true stories with uh, with uh, David Byrne. David Byrne, Byrne yeah. And, and I was doing a terrible, horrible, horrible, unwatchable slasher movie in Austin. And I drove up through Dallas on the way back to New York, and I and we were sitting around mm-hmm. talking, complaining to each other about producers, and we made the newbie error of saying to one another, "You know, we'd be a lot better off if we made our own." And he said to me, "He was a horse player." Oh, okay. He said to, he, he said to me, "There's a book I." just read that would make a really really good movie oh no kidding. Uh, it's called good vibes and it's by a, a writer named jay Connolly. so i said all right i'm game i went back to new york right now you talk about it again having a hard time finding the book first of all i found out it wasn't jay Connolly; it was jay Cronley, who i'd never heard of and second of all when i went to the strand bookstore on broadway and mm-hmm. 13th street I bought all five copies that were on the shelf and I found out who Jay's agent was. He had an impressive agent in New York. I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was, I remember the name was, uh, was known. And I went in and I, uh, offered the money and, uh, Ned and I paid to option mm-hmm. good vibes. And it was just in time because we were the first people 
to option a Jay Cronley book. You may or may not know oh. that his right after we optioned Good Vibes for for hardly any money because we didn't have a lot of money. Right. And you're not supposed to spend your own money. That's what they say. And we spent our own money and we optioned the book ourselves. And right after that, options went out for uh, for Funny Farm and for Quick Change and a bunch of other. And so if if we had been six months later, this movie wouldn't have gotten made the way it was anyway, because we wouldn't have been involved. So we optioned the uh, book. Mm-hmm. We had a we had a two two pronged plan. Okay. Just in case, I wrote a version of the screenplay. I wrote a draft of the screenplay. It was unspeakably bad. I'm not a screenwriter. Okay. Meanwhile, in Hollywood, Ned's sister, yeah, became interested in the story because it's a great book, as you know. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the uh, producer who just passed away. Uh, couple of years ago, Jerry Weintraub. Okay. Jerry Weintraub had just had just announced a hundred million dollar production fund. This is the it doesn't sound like a lot now because they pay a hundred million dollars at the drop of a hat. But back then in nineteen eighty five, somebody gets a hundred million dollars, they could make a bunch of movies. Yes. The trouble is Jerry Weintraub had no intention of making movies with that money. What he did was he stole most of it and he gave out bits of it to his friends and one of the friends that he gave the money to he gave five hundred thousand dollars to nancy dowd to write the script for good vibes and we know that he had no intention of making the movie because the day that she submitted the script he exercised his option to abandon the project the same day the same day now however there are other producers in hollywood and David right. David Geiler, who mm-hmm. you you might recognize from movies like Alien, sure. television shows like The Rifleman, David Geiler was able to go in and make a deal of Paramount, and that's how the movie got made. We and it was the and it really we I really it fooled it. We fooled ourselves. I mean, I was walking around after optioning the book and telling people that we were going to make this movie. And by the way. My script, mm-hmm. my version of the script, which was horrendous, was called Let It Ride. I, I, I called the script Let It Ride. Where did you come up I with ch- the name? I was trying to figure out a better name than Good Vibes for the movie. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I used the working title Letting It Ride. And I, and I, I, I showed the screenplay to a friend of mine, Mark Horowitz, who's, who had written some screenplays mm-hmm. and he said to me you shouldn't call it letting it ride you should just call it let it ride mm-hmm. so i changed the name to let it ride and that's the name that went out on my script now i never discussed it with nancy dowd in fact i've never met nancy dowd you've never uh, met nancy dowd no nancy it's a little dowd. strange don't you think it sounds a little no odd. no nancy lives in uh antigua or at least the last time I heard, she did. Okay. She keeps to herself. Mm-hmm. She took a pseudonym. She took a nom de the screen of Ernest Morton for this film. Yes. As she does, as she has for a lot of her scripts. She's. I, I don't want to uh, speak ill of her because I don't know if she's dead yet. But put it this way, she's not a sociable person. Okay. But for some reason, and so I'll never know why she liked my 
title. Ned didn't like the title, uh, my title. He didn't like Let It Ride. He, he didn't want to call it Let It Ride. But did when Nancy when Nancy's script came in, Let It Ride was on the uh, on the title page, which is my my title. Well, I mean, if it makes you feel better, I think it's a better title. So you know, I think it's a better title yeah. too. That's why I change it. But Good Vibes is the name of the book, and the book is amazing. It is. It is truly. So we went along with David Geiler's plan, and David Geiler, who died last year, yes, his agent Jeff Berg and David Geiler tried to get the project away from me and Ned. We owned the project, and one day our lawyer David Hollander called us up, called me up, and said, "There's something funny going on." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "I think Jeff Berg and David Geiler are are trying to cut you guys out of the picture." And uh, Ned got very upset about it, but I said, "Don't worry, we own it. We have we own the option. They right. can't okay. They can't do it. They can't do it without us." So we get closer to production, and they exercise the pay or play option on us, informing us that we're not needed. David Geiler goes down to Florida, mm-hmm. looks around, realizes that he's got a director who loves to make commercials but doesn't know the first thing about features, and he needs people to help him make the movie. And so we went down to Florida and made the movie. So you were out until he got we down were, there. We, we he- were out until until David Geiler realized it was more than he f- wanted to do. Okay. It was- so he got me and Ned to come down. And I worked a lot mainly with my friend Wolf Kruger, who was the production designer. I had worked with him previously on Michael Cimino's Year of the Dragon. Oh. And we hired him to be the production designer on Let It Ride. He was a friend of ours from Montreal. Mm-hmm. And it, we had a lot of fun. That's how we made That's how the movie got made. But basically, David Geiler wanted to steal the project from us. I, I never found out how he expected to do it because, I mean, I that said that I owned the property i i it Um, it seems like there's so many times i hear a story and and this is kind of what it is oh these guys they don't know what they're doing i've been in this business forever let me just come and just take that oh i i had a phone call like that with him Uh, the lawyer told me that something funny was going on so i called up guyler on the telephone i was in new york he was los angeles i called him up i said should is there some problem that i should know about and he started yelling at me how many movies have you produced oh my god why am i talking to you (laughs) <laughs> and of course, at, at that time, I hadn't produced any movies. And the reason I was talking to him was because I had heard that he and Jeff Berg were plotting against us. Years later, I ran into Jeff Berg at the Cannes Film Festival with my late friend, Stuart Kleinman, who was, uh, I grew up with him, went to school with him. He was the guy who gave me the idea for the movie State of Grace. And we were together at Cannes. And uh, we ran into Jeff Berg, who was Stuart's boss at the time. And he introduced me to Jeff, who I'd never met. And I said, hi, remember me from Let It Ride? Uh-huh. And he wouldn't look me in the face, wouldn't look me in the eye. It was, yeah, I remember. They all remember. Jeez. Oh, whenever they, whenever they, the people who screw you always remember. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Anyway, he ended up not being able to screw us, but we got screwed anyway, because you said you went to see it the, when it opened. I did. When the, when the movie opened in New York, the ad was for the new Angelica Theater on Houston Street and Broadway in the Cable Building. It was a brand new theater, the Angelica Cinemas on Houston Street. And 
there was the nice big ad and all the show times and everything. And my wife and I lived at Bleaker and McDougal and we right. walked the five blocks over to the Angelica and found a construction site. Wait, what are you telling so, me? What are you telling me? The, the, the theater wasn't, was not open yet. There were ads in the New York Times with, with show times. So if you were looking for the movie, I mean, we talk about what, how, you know, the things that made the movie fail at the box office. Right. One of the, one of the things that made it fail at the box office was there were ads in the newspaper for a theater which had not yet opened its doors. And then I went up to I, I wanted to see I wanted to see a theater with the movie in it. So I went up to Times Square and I went in to a theater that it was actually playing in. And there were like five people in the theater. So for me, it was not an auspicious opening day. Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't sound like it. Here's something that I just learned, right? So I was looking for the Siskel and Ebert review of, of the movie, which I used to watch that show. Ebert liked it. Okay, here's what I can tell you. Here's what I can tell you. There is no episode where they review it in 1989. That weekend, they review everything else except that movie. And then in 1992... There is a uh, Guilty Pleasures episode where Gene Siskel is, it's on his list. And when he, he shows the clips and he talks about, you know what, this movie, it's great, it's fantastic, blah, 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 blah. And at the time, Ebert says, I've never heard of this movie. When did you see this? We didn't review this. I don't even know about this film. And I'm just thinking, how is it possible that a movie that's coming, that's being released from Paramount Pictures, is, I, and it's got a major star in it. How is it that it is so buried that somebody like Roger Ebert in 1992 wasn't aware of that? And I'll add add to that story. It went later on. Mm-hmm. It went on to Ebert's guilty pleasures list. And when I and I ran into Ebert at Cannes again one year, and he had positively reviewed three films that I did. I believe he was he liked Let It Ride, he liked State of Grace and he liked Fresh. And I thanked him. I went up to him and I, I had never met him before, but right. he's a very he was a very nice man. And I went up to him and I said, "You know, you've reviewed the, the first three films that I produced very well and I I'm grateful to you." And he was he was very gracious about it, but you ask why it happens. Yes, why the people why who run, the people who run the studios. Mhm. Who, who make the marketing decisions are morons. <laughs> Somebody yes. spent money. Absolutely. Good money. Right. Good money. Yes. Putting an ad in the New York Times mm-hmm. for the for the shows at the Angelica Film Center, which hadn't opened yet. OK, so how I mean, I don't it's hard for me to to reconcile with the people who I know in marketing and the people who I know now who are in charge of that sort of thing. I don't actually personally know anyone stupid enough to put an ad in the paper for a show for a theater that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But back then, I guess it happened all the time. They make the wrong judgments. As William Goldman famously said, nobody knows anything. Mm -hmm. And, And one of the things that people who don't know anything do is... They bury good movies. They market them improperly. There are a couple of things about that movie that I think that when I watch it, I, I don't like it. I don't like very much, but they probably have nothing to do with the commercial uh, uh, failure of the movie. I don't like the score by Giorgio Moroder. Okay. Our joke was, and it's not far from the truth. When they hired Giorgio Moroder, 
the joke was he went into the office at Paramount, signed his contract, went out to the parking lot, opened the trunk of his car, which was a customized car called the Marauder, reached into the trunk, grabbed a handful of music sheets, went back in and said, here's your score. I mean, there are a couple of, I I watched the movie recently, but I also watched it in preparation for this conversation. And I got to tell you, every time I hear the score, it sounds less appropriate to me. I mean, there are scenes in that movie where I'm waiting for a musical cue that would have made sense and improved it as a film. And they don't come because of Giorgio Moroder, who got the music out of the trunk of the Moroder. Okay, so uh, tell me about uh, Joe Pitka and and the choice of him as director. Obviously, this is his first movie. He comes from music videos, commercials. We all know this. But here he's getting this opportunity to direct this, his first feature film. So where did that choice come from? That that was David Geiler's choice. We originally, they were talking about more established mainstream comedy directors at the time. People who had worked before with Richard Dreyfuss, people who were more familiar. And Ned and I were not involved in the choice of the director. Okay. We found out. And it was Geiler who, 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 who put Pitka on the show. And I don't know if you've listened to uh, Pitka's commentary on the Blu-ray that yes. came out. Mm-hmm. It's very funny to listen to because he's kind of a, I don't know how much you know about him, but he is, we called him Conan the director. Oh my God. Okay. All right. So real quick side note, I talked to Jay Cronley. In like 2006, I interviewed him, and that is exactly what he told me. Conan the director. That's what he Conan told me. Conan the director. Yes. He would, he, first of all, he's six foot eight or something ridiculous like that. This is many years ago. I don't know what he's like now. He, he, he probably is fit because he's the kind of person who would keep himself fit, but he's much older. But when, I, when we worked with him, he could have picked me up with one hand and broke me in half. <laughs> and, um, what he did was he brought his core of commercial crew with him. He brought his AD. Mm-hmm. He brought his uh, DP. And if you listen to his commentary, mm-hmm. yep. he taught us how to make movies. That's, he, yes. He, he taught us. They, because when he got to Florida, nobody knew what they were doing. Now, in fact, Geiler had, was a veteran mm-hmm. producer. Of course. He just had gotten a little bit too lazy and uh, had used a little bit too much cocaine by that time to actually want to work on the movie. So what he did was he used his influence to get his friends involved, like Terry Garr and various other members of the cast. who did a wonderful cast, wonderful cast. Geiler used his influence to get the cast, and Geiler picked Pitka. But I think Pitka must have adopted this attitude that they didn't know what they were doing because when he got to Florida before we got there, they didn't know what they were doing and they weren't doing anything. They were uh, I, Wolf Kruger, our friend was already on the job and his descriptions of what was going on there were not, were not that complimentary. When Ned came down, mm-hmm. he straightened things out. And by the time I got there, it was a real movie. But if you listen to, to Pitka talking, he taught us all how to make movies. And the fact of the matter is the attitude and demeanor of the 
of his people yeah. was, was always a matter of sort of humor to us because clearly they were so deeply pampered and happy to be part of Joe Pitka's crew. That guy got paid a lot of money when he made commercials and they spent a lot of money on his commercials and his crews got paid very, very well. Mm -hmm. And they really, really, really liked the fact that they worked with him over and over again. Some of the actors in the movie were from his, were, were from Pitka's group, like John Roselius, who plays the security guard. Okay. Yeah. And we had later on, he was in a, Ned and I did a movie called state of grace. And unfortunately, John Roselius is, is murdered by uh, Gary Oldman in that movie. But Roselius was a Pitka hire. Roselius is the guy from the from the Pitka commercial. This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Oh, my God. Any, any questions? That's John Roselius. How did I never realize that? I've seen that commercial more than I've seen Let It Ride. Holy well, God. that's the, that's Joe Pitka and John Roselius. Oh, yeah. And anyway, Pitka was chosen by uh, by Guiler with I guess with the studio's approval at the, at the time. Paramount was run by people who I would characterize as as not ethically reliable. I worked, one of the reasons that I spent a lot of time with Wolf Kruger in the art department was that there was a lot of, a lot of deals that were made for materials and, mm -hmm. and, and, and dressing that were ridiculous and could only, were, and suffice to say that they only would have been made by people who, whose job it was mm -hmm. to, to buy things for twice as much as they cost. Okay. So that so that they could, you know. Yes, I I am aware of this. I have uh, figure 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 out a way to mm -hmm. take some of the money home with them. That's but yeah. and it drove it drove Wolf crazy. It drove me crazy. It drove Ned crazy. It drove everybody crazy because they wouldn't. You know, Wolf specializes in monumental sets. He built the back lot in Wilmington, North Carolina, three and a half blocks of Chinatown a little Italy for Year of the Dragon, Michael Cimino's movie. He built the, the town in Malta for Popeye. He built two towns for We're No Angels. He specializes in monumental sets. And his original, the only set that he was able to build for Let It Ride, according to his wishes, right. was, the, was the bar. Originally, the jockey club set okay. was twice as big, but because they had to pay twice as much for the tables and twice as much for the lamps, they had to cut back on his plan. This is always, unfortunately, happens a lot. When you have a real genius production designer like Wolf Kruger. All right. So, so that, that people look over his shoulder and you know, try to try to get him to not spend as much money. So the Jockey Club, is that filmed at Hylia Park? Oh, everything was filmed at Hialeah, oh, except, okay. except for the bar. So the bar was was on, built elsewhere, but it was nearby. Can, yeah, can you tell me where it was? Because I will I will tell you, Randy. You may be amused, but I have looked for it, and of course, because I live, you know, I can drive to Hialeah, and we're it's not a real bar. I, well, I know that now. It was a built set, <laughs> I, but you know. Here's the thing. You see them walking across the street to it. So I remember yes. thinking, it's got to be a bar across the street from Hialeah Park. But no, well, no. It wasn't a no, bar. No. It was a set. Okay. And if you want me to. Yes. I uh, Right now, I'm trying to empty out this house. And among the other things, I'm coming across all of my 
papers from all of the films that I've worked on. And it's possible that at some point I can find the location list and tell you what the uh, address was of the, but I'm not, I actually, I'm not <laughs> sure that I have, I, I'm not sure that I have that okay. list. It's possible that I don't. So, so don't, uh, but whatever it is, sure. it was a built set. Okay. And, and it was, it was not a, it was not a bar. So also the, uh, the, the Chinese restaurant in the opening scene. Uh, that was, I believe that was shot in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. All right. He had originally, I could be wrong about that. I'd have to ask Ned about that. I wasn't around for that. Okay. That was an addition because if you, again, if you saw the, if you, uh, looked at the, uh, Blu-ray yes. of the movie, you saw that there were a bunch of scenes mm-hmm. that were a little bit skewed towards a more, uh, darker, a more serious approach to the story more of a an emphasis on the pathology of compulsive gambling and that stuff was cut out yes it was and 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 it was what remains is the book which was unrelentingly hilarious and certain scenes like the chinese restaurant scene that were meant to set up the uh the idea of luck and following rules of luck and 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 not upsetting the mm-hmm. the forces that control luck so that scene that was that scene always supposed to be there that chinese restaurant scene because i'm always under the impression that maybe that was added later on after they did maybe an, an initial cut and it wasn't happy and so okay you have to go back and do this other scene i have to say that i do not Remember, I would have to find the I would have to find my copy of Nancy's original script. Okay, and see whether it's there. I I mean, it's we're talking about 1988. Yeah, there's there, there's no fault in in not remembering things from all the um, back, so don't worry about anything like that. I, I always had the impression that it was put in there to replace the darker stuff. Okay, see, that's that, that really didn't belong. Yes. But I, I can't, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't really remember exactly how that happened. I wasn't around for the shooting of that. Okay, yeah, because it's one of those things where that scene seemingly sets up the rest of the movie so perfectly that without that scene, it just, you know, it seems like you're really. I, I think I, I was actually surprised when I saw the, the darker stuff. Uh, okay. Uh, the, the additional footage on the Blu ray, because that was not in Nancy's script. I mean, Nancy made, Nancy's script was the book. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a great lesson for me because I had tried, as I said, I had tried to write a, a version of the screenplay myself, and I was not a writer. <laughs> so I was using all these idiotic uh, techniques that you get from instruction books on how to write a screenplay. Okay, sure. And it just went. I followed all the instructions as best I could, oh, yeah. and it just went went horribly horribly wrong and then i look at nancy's script and it's so it looks so effortless but i you know it takes a certain kind of intense talent i mean she's a very talented writer and to put that book onto the screen the way she did onto the page so that it could be put on the screen the way she did is really kind of was pretty amazing and what was amazing about it was that she changed so little Mm -hmm. it's so like the book it is. It is like the book. Absolutely, yeah. And when you when you watch adaptations, mm-hmm. you you often see departures from the adaptations, and I understand why that happens. It's because 
people don't know how to handle the book. That's what happened to me. But the script that I wrote was like, went off in tangents that I can't, I mean, I, I don't even want to think about it for no reason at all. Just because, because I didn't know what I was doing. She knew what she was doing and she really got the book onto the screenplay page. Okay. All right. So let me ask you about Richard Dreyfus. Who, whose idea was it to have uh, Dreyfus as Trotter? It was Guyler's idea. I have to give Guyler that credit. Guyler was an old Hollywood hand and he knew everybody and he had made giant movies. Mm -hmm. So when he yelled at me in order to get me off the scent of whatever chicanery he and Jeff Berg were up to, he wasn't actually lying about it. He, I mean, he actually had the credentials to sure. say to a person like me, how many movies have you produced? Because I hadn't produced any movies. So he was able, you know, he could, he was a friend of Terry Gars. He just, he just asked these people, you know, he, it was it was not a difficult job casting the movie for him mm-hmm. and for the people and for the casting people he worked with because it's a great script. I mean, you got you know, and everybody thought it was gonna gonna be a popular movie, except the people who were in charge of actually selling it who didn't seem to understand it. Yeah, uh, I my also okay. So I also it's supposed to, it was supposed to be released about a month later, right? Like towards the end of September, early October. That was the initial, and then they moved it up to to August. I don't remember wh- how that came about okay. or why. Okay, so there you go. That was going to be my question there. D- do you know if, if Paramount, how they felt about the movie? Because something tells me that maybe they did not have confidence in it. I'm sure they didn't have confidence in it. The people who were running Paramount at the time, as I said before, I, would, I, I don't consider them to be trustworthy and reputable people. I worked for Paramount uh, a few years later. Mm-hmm on the firm. Okay. And they had tightened up, they had changed management and they had tightened up the ship to the point where on let it ride. If somebody wanted to buy, you know, a, a cast iron light stands for the jockey club and wanted to call up the manufacturer and offer them twice as much money as they actually cost. Right. They could get away with it <sighs> on, on the firm. I had trouble getting reimbursed for Sidney Pollock's hotel bill because they wanted an itemized list of his phone calls. That's how I mean, they did it. 180 degree fiscal. And that's, you know, that's fine. They were looking after the money by that time. They were making sure that people weren't, you know, they were making sure that people weren't stealing money anymore, but it was a different regime. It was a different, it was a different atmosphere. Yeah. But I really, I really had that experience where I, I was uh, running the Cayman Island location. And when Sydney came to scout in the Caymans, mm-hmm. it had been my habit from the beginning of my career to trust people that I worked for. And so I used my American Express card to pay uh, Sydney's uh, hotel bill. And then I found, you know, I got a telephone call from Elton McPherson, the straight arrow production auditor. Oh, my God. Who, who, who was put in by, by Paramount to make sure that nobody was stealing money. And he wouldn't uh, reimburse my... I had to pay the... I said, Elton, I have to pay my, my American Express bill. And he said, well, then just get me an itemized list of Sydney's phone calls. And I said, are you, are you telling me that you're going to go over the list of Sydney Pollock's phone calls that he made from the hotel here during the scout? And you're looking for what? Things that you can exclude? 
things that you will disallow. Yes. I just got an itemized list of the phone calls. I sent it to him and he, he, he paid me. Wow. I mean, but but they, that's a, but that's actually how you're supposed to do it. Yeah, I, I suppose. I could see that. I could see that. I mean, but. if you're, you know, uh, by the time we made, we were working on the firm, you know, budgets had increased quite a bit. And that movie was probably budgeted around 70 million at the time, which which was at the high end of what was going on back mm-hmm. then. And you, you, that's the correct way to run a movie. Mm-hmm. You don't, you, you make sure that everything adds up and that, every penny that is spent is spent on something for the movie. Mm-hmm. Sure. All right. So y- you filmed down here in South Florida and I live down here and I know what things are like down here and, and I know what they were like at the time. So tell me about what I'm going to guess is uh, potential uh, crippling corruption of local South Florida people, maybe politicians, anybody that you had to deal with track people, Anything along those lines? None of it reached a level that affected the production. None of it. Okay. None of it. Okay. None of it. There, we were, first of all, uh, you've been to Hialeah, mm-hmm. I assume. Yes. It's, it's a 15-minute drive from the road to the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you go, it's far away. It's not like you're in the middle of town where somebody... Oh, yeah, no. Where, we are, where people are aware of your presence. Nobody... You know, we were we were a, a contained unit, far away from everybody else. Nobody really paid attention to what we were doing. There were not encroachments. It was a very it's a very large uh, area. The stable was still operating, not for racing purposes, but for for stabling purposes. While we were there, for example, the Clydesdales came through, and they were stabled at Hialeah for a while because they were in South Florida and they. And they needed a place to be uh, stable for a while and be driving to work and see this horse. You get out of the car and walk over to the horse and <laughs> you come up to the horse's knee is like here, you know, they're incredibly <laughs> large. So uh, if you're talking about corruption, the only corruption that I encountered was on the part of people who had been sent by Paramount Pictures to participate in the making of the movie. Okay. I, was, I, I didn't have anything to do with with the securing the Hialeah location, there must have been a pretty good deal made because we owned it. I mean, it was ours. We, uh, you know, when, when the art department needed something for a set, we had the run of the place. You could walk into any office. There was tons and tons of stuff, stationery, paperwork, all sorts of stuff that all we had to do was take it and use it we wanted it to use it as set dressing mm-hmm. there was nobody there who told us we couldn't do anything okay we had one of the best horse wranglers in the business rudy ugland who was legendary it was legendary in hollywood in fact i he had worked on uh, year of the dragon he was in charge of the horses on year of the dragon so i knew him already wolf wolf kruger knew him already but he was he's a legend and he bought some retired thoroughbred horses and arranged the races for the for the early morning mm-hmm. so that they would so the horses could run when it was still cool so every morning there was uh, there was we filmed uh, races in the cool of the morning and then the horses went back to the stable and then we did the stuff with the actors so they were retired but race horses they were retired race horses they were uh, and we bought them 
what do you do after you've you've bought the horses and then the movie's over? Well, this is a good Rudy Oakland story. Rudy uh, Rudy found out that the production manager, who was one of the people who was making those interesting deals with vendors, had, had arranged to sell the horses to be slaughtered and used for 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 meat for animals. And when he found out. Okay. When Rudy, when Rudy found out, yeah, that this deal was in the offing, I didn't see it happen, but uh, I'm told that he almost killed uh, the person who was responsible for trying to make that deal. Okay. Um, okay. The horses were adopted by crew people who lived in Florida. Oh no! Who kidding. had who had places yeah. to put them mm. and to and to house them, and uh, they were not harmed. Okay, uh, Ru- Rudy. Rudy wouldn't have allowed. I mean, he, he he loved horses, and they were you know he he was in charge of them, and he wasn't going to let anything like that happen. Oh my God! For meat, Jesus. Yeah, uh, meat. I, it, when they, I, one thing that is, get money is very underrated about this movie is how good those horse races look. Those horse races look. <laughs> those are real thoroughbred horses, yeah. and. Rudy Ugland was the wrangler who knew horses, the new horse racing. My partner, my producing partner, Ned Dowd, was a horse fanatic. In fact, you know, the book, Good Vibes, takes place at the Arkansas Derby. That's the, it's the day, it's the day of the Arkansas Derby. And it's at Oaklawn Park in Little Rock. And after we optioned the book, Ned and I mm-hmm. went went to the Arkansas Derby with Jay Cronley, oh. the, the author. Okay, we went to the Hot Springs. Okay, yeah, not Little Rock, Hot Springs, Arkansas. We went to the Hot Springs, which is a an interesting thing to experience. And uh, we went to the we attended the Arkansas Derby, and Ned and 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 Jay were figuring out their bets. I didn't have very much experience betting, so. I I didn't do very much. Jay's wife sat there quietly with a racing form, marking it up, and she bet two dollars on every race and won every race. Oh no, kidding! Yeah. By the end of the weekend that we were there, I didn't lose that much money because I'm not much of a gambler. But Jay and and Ned had lost a, a good amount of money. But Jay's <laughs> wife Jay's wife had had picked a winner on every race. And I'd bet two dollars. She's on my list of people to talk to, actually, uh, in a few episodes to uh, talk to her. Honey, yeah, we had a lot of fun. She was. Uh, I haven't. I mean, I haven't seen her since then, but she's a very nice lady. So, all right. So, so tell me a little bit about uh, your interactions with Jay Cronley. Well, you know him. You you've talked to him. He was great. He, I mean, was, he was just yeah. he was just a delightful person. He was hilariously funny person. You'd sit with him, and his the expressions that he used and his tone of voice, was, you know, oh horseshit, you know, he was always saying things like that. And uh, he was just he was, he was hilarious. It was it was great fun to be around him. He was not around during shooting, of course. He came to visit, but he lived in in hot. He, he lived in Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, Oklahoma. He wasn't around during the shooting, but I think he was. I think he was pretty happy with the with the movie. He and yeah. Ned Ned made a a, a video mm-hmm. of the World Series of Poker, where he went to the World Series of Poker with Jay, and Jay entered the World Series of Poker, and he like he he 
ran out of money after the first day or something and left. So <laughs> it ended up not. It ended up not being. Uh, Where, where's this video though? There's a video of um, this. There was a video, and I, I have to, you know, I've never actually seen it, and I keep, Ned keeps talking about it. And I have to, I, I keep not getting a copy of it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Have to somehow find it. <laughs> okay, so the the theme, the idea of of this podcast is to uh, not only just discuss Let It Ride, my favorite movie, but to do it scene by scene. So I do have a scene for us to discuss. Mm-hmm. So let's let's break that down if you don't mind. Okay. So this is the scene. It's the first race. So this is the scene where Trotter and Looney, they first head out to the railing. And anything that you can remember, I don't know if you were there, maybe anything that you have, but this is where, so Trotter and Looney, they, they go out to the, to the track and they meet Vincent, Tony Longo, and he shoves everybody down. You know, that, that's his job. He right. makes money. Trotter does his instant math inside his head. Right, right, right. Which is from the book. Yes. Determines that it's $1,400 a day. And Longo, seemingly, this is a recurring thing where whatever he's thinking, the person he's thinking it about responds to him. And he says... He actually actually, uh, said out loud in that scene. Yes. In a couple of other scenes, like when he goes in the Ben's room and and he calculates how much the bathroom attendant is making, he doesn't say anything. But he actually says out loud to Tony Longo, um, that's a lot of money. He does, yes. So you can sort of figure that he heard him say that, and he was responding to it when he said, "For yeah, for being big." Yes. <laughs> so, do you remember? Were you there when they filmed this one? I I was not on the set while we were filming that. No, I was elsewhere oh. in the in the complex. Oh, okay, but you were probably there that day. You just were yes. Got it. Okay. So what might you have been doing while they were filming? Ah, confess. Come on, Randy, spill it. Spill I, spent most of, I spent most of my time trying to straighten out the uh, expenditures of the art department because stuff was going on that I thought ah. shouldn't be going on. And right. Ned was had more to do with the uh, day-to-day running of the, of the production than I did. Ah. One of the reasons I did what I did was because I, I Wolf Kruger, our friend, sure. wanted wanted to have somebody looking over the shoulder of the people who were handling the money because okay. you know he was he was responsible for the budget of the art department and if if it wasn't all going up on the screen, he wanted to know about it. Mm-hmm. So I sort of worked with the art department for most of the uh, time that I was there and. Less, I was less involved with the uh, day-to-day working of the production. Oh, okay. The other thing was, I personally didn't find it pleasant to be around Joe Pitka. Okay. So I sort of didn't put myself in his path often. I just didn't find him to be a, a very congenial person. When I was introduced to him, Ned said, this is, this is uh, Randy. He optioned the book. And Pitko wouldn't, didn't look at me, first of all, didn't shake my hand, and said, this movie has nothing to do with the book, and turned around and walked away. Okay. That was my, introdu- that was my uh, introduction to Joe Pitko. That's what a nice person he was. So I figured, first of all, yeah. it would interest Nancy Dow to find out that the movie had nothing to do with the book, since the book is 
has all of the major beats of the book. Yeah. Uh, the movie has all of the major beats of the book and is really a very, very faithful adaptation of the book. But according to Pitkin, it has nothing to do with the book. The movie has nothing to do with the book. Yeah, this, this recalls, and actually I mentioned this uh, in another episode, but when I talked to Cronley and I asked him about Pitka, he told me his interaction was basically this, was, you know, introduction, Jay says hello, and, and Pitka says to him, listen, I don't want your book getting in the way of my movie. And Cronley said, all right, that's it. I'm out of here. That's what he told me. Yep. Those are his words. So sounds accurate to and you. P- meanwhile, yeah. the script was the book. And no, and Pitt could try if you like I said, you look at the uh, stuff that was cut out in the extras of the of the Blu-ray, and you see that there was stuff that Pitka was trying to put in there that didn't belong there at all. Mm-hmm. You know, real hard, you know, like pathology, you know, the patholo- the pathology of compulsive gambling wasn't the subject of that movie. Yeah, yeah. It it really throws off the enjoyment that you're supposed to have. That's right. one thing that gets me about that that op- the opening scene really kind of is such a downer. Like, you know, to actually be in a, a gambler's anonymous meeting and then we're supposed to have such a fun day at the track, it really kind of conflicts. And so when I saw it, I was like, Oh wow, this is very interesting. It's an interesting it was scene. A, but it's, and like, it's lucky oh. lucky the lucky he wasn't allowed to, to, to keep it in the movie. Anyway, anyway, Joe Pitka is not, you know, listed in, in the pantheon of uh, Hollywood directors of features. Yeah. Uh, put, it, put it that way. Yes. It's interesting. I think he did a pretty good job with this movie. All things considered. It looks great. It zips along. You know, you know, he went he went around basically telling everybody that, you know, no one other than he was contributing anything worthwhile yeah. to the film. And, you know, let him think that. Fine. This five is funny to listen to him talk on the uh, commentary. Do you have people ask you about this movie a lot? People do talk about this movie sometimes. Okay. And uh, it's gratifying. You know, I mean, it's a good movie. It's a great movie. It's, it's a great movie. It's a, there you go. It, it is a great movie, okay? <laughs> it is a I great movie. I absolutely love it. Except for except for the music, I would have I would have hired a different <laughs> I would have hired a different composer. Okay, all right, all right. So anyway, you know what? Let me just uh, sum up this scene very quickly. With the one thing I find very interesting about this scene, and so we're, we're finishing it where the the race happens, it finishes, and we're now waiting for the photo. But what I always find interesting is is Looney's attitude regarding the race, like. He is just more and more not rooting for his friend to win. You know, here he's just like, oh my goodness, you know what? If blurred image, that's Marty's horse. He'd be tickled to pieces if if that won. While Trotter is just dying, seemingly in anguish in this moment. Would, uh, this is also a feature of real life horse players, and was a feature of the book, which is nobody likes. A winner who comes out of nowhere and doesn't, and you know, unless everybody wins, they were mad at him for winning because he didn't tell them he was going to win. But he did tell them he was going to win. He did. He yeah. he, he he told everybody. Looney gave him the information for God's sake. Yes. And 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 when he yells at him at the end of the race, where he says, "You are the unluckiest person in the world," and you know, he that's the way those people actually interact 
at the racetrack in real life. If you stumble onto a winner, mm-hmm. a big winner, yeah, and nobody else knows about it but you, even if they really do know about it and they forgot they knew about it, you know, you're an asshole because you won. <laughs> it's part of what makes the book so realistic, even though it's silly mm-hmm. uh, and funny. But there's a superstitious element to the way people operate at the track. And there's a social order that has to be maintained. And, and nobody is no, nobody gets more sympathy than a loser. Mm-hmm. And nobody is more bitterly regarded than a winner. Yeah. Okay, so, Randy, this film, it does not do particularly well. What does this do for you as Randy, your career? Does this negatively impact you? Is the fact that you've produced a movie and it got made and it was released, does, does that positively impact you? How does it affect you? I mean, you've got another movie that comes out the next year, we've discussed, State of Grace. So, you know... What was tell you what neg- I tell you what negatively impacted me. Okay. What negatively impacted me was, as I said, the the Ned and Alan Nichols and I were sitting on the uh, somewhere in the middle of Dallas, and we stupidly decided that we would improve our our condition, our working conditions, if we produced our own movies, without knowing what that meant. What it meant is you're dealing with people like David Geiler and Jeff Berg and uh, Joe Pitka, and you do not, you're, it's, you're not in control. So the ease with which we got the picture made mm-hmm. and the speed with which we got it made. I mean, I optioned the book in 1985, towards the end of the year of 1985. We were shooting in 1988. When it became known among my circle of friends that I had spent my own money to option this book, there were people who thought the idea was completely ridiculous mm. and said so to me. And I, I, I was annoyed by, by that. But the fact of the matter is, it was ridiculous. It was completely ridiculous. <laughs> it was ridiculous that, that we had the luck that we had in being able to option a Jay Cronley book before anybody else did. It was sheer luck that Nancy Dowd had a hole in her schedule and that Jerry Weintraub was handing out hundreds of thousands of dollars to his friends. You know, he had to get rid of that $100 million somehow. He didn't make any movies. I think he made, like, My Stepmother is an Alien, and that's the only movie he made. Uh And then suddenly the money was gone. Where did it go? He paid his friends money to do things. Like, he paid Nancy $500,000 to write this script and abandoned the project the day she handed in the script. He had no intention of making the movie. He needed to to spend some of that $100 million so that he could keep the rest of it. And you, can't, you don't keep money by actually spending it on a movie. So in that respect, we got fooled into thinking how easy it was. So before we, we were actually making Let It Ride, I got started on another project. And I had not yet learned my lesson. It, was, it took me a long time to learn the lesson that I, that I ultimately learned. I was sitting around one Sunday and uh, my late friend Stuart Kleinman called up and said, did you read Jimmy Traub's article in the Sunday Times magazine about the Westies? And I said, no. And I had so happened, Stuart and Jimmy Traub and I had all gone to high school together and junior high school together. So we, and I had just had 
dinner with Jimmy Trapp at a friend's house a few weeks before that. So I picked up the magazine and I read the story about the Westies. It's a fascinating story. And I called up Jimmy Trapp and I said, you know, I'd like to option your, uh, your article. And I did it again because I thought that's what you do. And at that time, Ned Dowd had brought me into the circle of uh, the producer, Mike Hausman. Michael Hausman, who produced Places in the Heart and all of the Miller Foreman films, except for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and, you know, Silkwood. And Ned had been working with him. And he had brought me in to the, uh, to the organization as the Chicago location manager on a David Mamet film called Things Change. Oh, great and movie. At, and, at, and at that point, because most of the movie was shot in, in Lake Tahoe, but I handled the Chicago location because I had lived there before when I, earlier I had quit the movie business because I wasn't earning enough money and I worked for Hammerker Schlemmer writing mail order catalogs and they moved from New York to Chicago. So I had lived in Chicago for a while and when it came time to set up the Chicago location for the exchange, Ned told Mike, Randy can do it, he knows Chicago. So I went to I went and I did that. And at that time, Mike Hausman had decided he wanted to start generating his own productions instead of just you know getting a call from the studio or getting a call from a director and saying i want you to make this movie with me and when we finished things changed we came back to new york and all of a sudden the first project that mike wanted to do was my westies project so i had two extremely lucky circumstances yeah. right off the bat of course the third time when I tried to develop another project and I spent all the money that I'd made on Let It Ride and on State of Grace on this third project. And of course, that never got made. Oh. Oh. So, uh, so I learned my lesson. What I had actually done, yeah. what people had warned me not to do, was the warning is, is correct. And it's really only f foolish people or very, very, very smart people who who can can have a success like that mm -hmm. i i i don't count myself among the the uh, geniuses i was very very lucky the first two projects that i wanted to make became movies and they had serious problems both of them involved with them i mean talk about let it ride having ads in the paper for showtimes at a theater that didn't exist on opening weekend in new york mm. when state of grace opened the Sunday Arts and Leisure had two separate articles, one about the role of malls in modern gangster movies, and another one, both of them speaking very, very highly of State of Grace. Okay, okay. And on the opening weekend. So I, I was very excited, and I, and I immediately started paging through the Arts and Leisure section to see what the ad looked like. Okay. And there, was, there wasn't an ad. There wasn't an ad. It's because at that point, Orion Pictures had run out of money. Oh, okay. And they didn't have money. They were sh basically starting to sh close down the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so there I was, elated that the, the, there was already advanced critical approval of, this, of the film. And there weren't any ads in the paper. So if you wanted to see it, there wasn't any way for you to, there wasn't, you know, there was no internet then. 
Yeah. You couldn't, there wasn't a, you had to look in the newspaper to, at the ad to find out what time to go to the movie and uh, uh, there, you couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that, Jesus. that movie went down the toilet as well. And that's a movie that a lot of people tell me they like also. It's, it's great. Like let it ride. It's a great movie. Yes. I mean, you know, but it was pure, it was luck that got both of those movies made. Mm. I was a person who grew up loving movies. The only reason I was in, involved in movies was because I loved movies. The only reason I was involved in production was because I loved making movies. And the only reason that I was able to make those first two movies was sheer dumb luck. And it worked the way it was supposed to work the third time out when I lost all the money that I had spent on optioning another book that mm. would have made a very good movie. And I had a lot of close calls with people who, you know, calling me, you know, get ready Monday, get the paperwork together. Right. They, they, want, right. they want to make a deal. And then nothing. Mm. I was working with uh, the late Dean Reisner, who wrote Dirty Harry. I was on the phone with him for weeks talking about the character in this book that I had optioned, and he wanted to write the script. And we were about to make a deal, and then all of a sudden, it just disappeared. Huh. And I never found out why. Hmm. It's just like, it was over. Sometimes these, yeah. Uh, it, and, uh, and that's the way it normally works. Yes. So that when I, when I first optioned Good Vibes, and people were saying, what an idiot I was, technically they were right, even though it worked out. Did you did you feel like you were maybe a, a bit of a genius for a short time? No, no, after, no, 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 no. Like, all right, let me just let me just finish. So the idea though that you got a Cronley book before the other people did. So well, I didn't know. I didn't know about it when we when we optioned the Cronley book. I had first of all just read the other books as a matter of course because I liked his writing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that they were. I didn't know they were already. They were getting ready to make movies of the other ones. I, I had no idea. So when we optioned the book, it wasn't like, oh boy, we just got out in under the wire. I only found that out later. All right. So when you found out that, uh, you know, hey, George Roy Hill is going to make another book by this author, did did you feel, oh, okay, that's got to be a good sign? No, because it was uh, we we'd already, you know, it it had nothing to do with us. I, I know. Randy, you just don't, you give yourself no credit, man. You give yourself no well, credit. Well, I, I tend on. to not give myself a lot of credit. I mean, I was not, I, it wasn't genius that, that, first of all, Ned told me about the book. Yeah. Uh, it was a book that he liked because he's a horse player and it's a beautiful book for a horse player. Yes. And I went and, and got the option on it because I wanted to make the movie. Mm-hmm. And as I said, the, the, process that led to the movie being produced so quickly was not normal it wasn't it's not the way it normally goes when they say don't when they say don't spend your own money on these Mm -hmm. things yeah they're right (laughs) for people like me i lived in new york i was not a hollywood person right the only reason the only reason i was involved in movies because i love movies i didn't uh, you know when i was when i called up david geiler to try and find out exactly what he and Jeff Berg were doing to undermine me and Ned, he taught me the Hollywood lesson by yelling at me. And, you know, he never told me what they were doing. I never found out what specifically they were doing in order to try to get rid of us. All I knew was that I had the uh, option and they couldn't get it away. They couldn't make the movie without me. Yeah. 
You had it. You I weren't going to let it go. They, they, you know, I, I never figured out what they thought they were going to do to get rid of us. Yeah. And I don't care. But the fact is, I was not a, a player. I was not a Hollywood player. I didn't know. And, and frankly, through my career, I can say pretty definitively that most of the very, very bad things that happened to me during my career either happened in Hollywood or as a direct result of something that happened in Hollywood. It's a terrible, terrible place. And the fact that I never considered moving to the West Coast, you know, it's just, it's, it's a disgusting place. My brother lives there. He's an actor. I can't, I don't know how he can stand it. <laughs> it's awful. I, and the people, the, the people are awful. I mean, not not the people every the people who you go to work with every day, right? Okay, are great people. The people who make the decisions uh, and 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 figure out ways of making those people's lives miserable. Yeah, those people are not nice people, <laughs> and those are the people that I'm complaining about. I gotcha. I got you, Randy. Oh, I but I'm not the only one who complains about. This. No, no, you're you're not the first person. Actually, as it turns out, it's not just you. So you know, right? <laughs> no, but and, and I well, I admire very much the people who have a better experience than I had in dealing with that in dealing with that establishment because there are smarter people and there are people who are more politically adept and there are nicer people mm -hmm. and people who are more skilled at, at navigating this sort of thing than I ever was. And I uh, admire them for for having uh, principled careers where where they're admired and they're liked and they're and they're known as honest, uh, straight shooting people and they treat people well and they're well thought of and I, I admire those people. They are there. However, <laughs> when you you know you want to build a career out of New York City in the motion picture industry, it limits. Mm. You it limits you if you are not one of them. Uh, we if you if you don't have the sensibility yeah. of 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 one of those uh, monsters. <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. Uh, Randy, thanks, man. Thank you for doing You're this. Welcome. And 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 again, and, and I'm I'm actually kind of excited. I can say to somebody. Thank you for making this movie. For, You're welcome. For, uh, it was it was my pleasure. For all the anguish uh, that you went through, you. No, but it was. Uh, I, I appreciate. I, I, it. I, I love. Know. I love doing it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Jockey Club. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Delgado. And a big thank you to my guest, producer Randy Ostrow. Thank you for sharing so much of what happened while you were making this movie that I love. I will also share with you that while I spoke with Randy, he was wearing his Let It Ride crew jacket, which was an impressive flex. Our theme music is from Epidemic Sound. Our cover art is by Sean Labrie. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, then you can help the show out by buying me a coffee. Yes, that is actually a thing. There is a link in the show notes on how to do it. Now, if you're saving up all of your pennies to bet on the four horse, I understand. You can still support the show by leaving a five-star review 
on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or maybe some other app that you may be using that also takes reviews. Do not be shy. Feel free to do it. If you want to contact me, you can send me an email. It's dan at moviemaker.com. I am on Twitter at underscore Dan underscore Delgado. Or even better yet, I'm on the Repod app, which is a great way to not only to listen to podcasts, but to interact with podcast hosts like me. Find it in your app store and then come on by and say hello. This has been Dan Delgado for the Jockey Club. And remember, sometimes... You could be walking around lucky and not know it. <laughs>